Could we read together in <coughs> Romans, the Roman letter, chapter 16 and from verse 25? Romans 16 from verse 25. <coughs> now to him that is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which hath been kept in silence through times eternal, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, is made known unto all the nations unto obedience of faith to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. And then in the Ephesian letter, <clears throat> and chapter 3, from verse 2, Ephesians chapter 3, from verse 2, If so be that ye have heard of the dispensation of that grace of God which was given me to you, Ward, how that by revelation was made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote of before in few words, whereby when ye read, ye can perceive my understanding in the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known unto the sons of men, as it hath now been revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, to wit, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of that grace of God which was given me according to the working of his power. Unto me who am less than the least of all saints was this grace given to preach unto the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the dispensation or administration or stewardship of the mystery which for ages hath been hid in God, who created all things, to the intent that now unto the principalities and the powers in the heavenly places might be made known through the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access and confidence through our faith in him. Now, um, as you know, we have been talking this last two weeks about this phrase, the mystery of Christ. And um, <clears throat> I can't really go over um, what we've said, important as it is, for the sake of those who've not been with us. All I would like to say is that this word mystery is used in a very special way in the New Testament and does not mean what we normally mean by the word mystery in the common usage of uh, the English word. You know, we mean generally by the word mystery some secret which is withheld. But the Bible, in its use of this Greek word, means the exact opposite. It is a secret which is communicated only to those who are initiated. In other words, <clears throat> the accent is upon the grace of God 
in bringing those who are born of God into a glorious understanding of a secret which has been hid all the way through the generations, but which now he has manifested or revealed or communicated. Now, if we understand that, it starts to open us up quite considerably on this matter. And last week, we spent our whole time on asking ourselves the question, what is the mystery of Christ? And I think as we looked at it, and I can't possibly give a survey of that, except to say that really the key, this is how we put it last week, the essential key of the two little words, in Christ. That's the key to this mystery. It's the glorious fact that not only was God in Christ reconciling the world, but that the Lord Jesus became the home of God on earth for the first time. Not the lodging place of God just passing through, not just a visiting place, as it were, something that God just visited, um, but uh, he became the home of God, the house of God. That's why Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And he spake of the temple of his body. And when he was raised up on the third day, he became the chief cornerstone of a building which God, of which God is the builder, and which the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, we shall grow into a holy temple in the Lord, builded together as a habitation or a home of God in the Spirit. Now, we said quite a lot more about the mystery of Christ last week, but I suggest, I, in fact, I ask you if you uh, will, to get hold of the tape and listen to it carefully and prayerfully um, because that last Thursday evening is the heart of the matter and all we've got to say about the practical relevance of it and the challenge of it and so on really hasn't got the same depth of meaning if you don't get hold of what really this mystery is. And since you are a child of God and born of the Spirit, what a privilege it is that God has given you that this thing which was hidden from, for ages and generations has now been communicated. And um, it's something that every one of us uh, has to be brought in. Now let me go on this evening. I want to speak on the <clears throat> challenge inherent within the revelation of the mystery of Christ. And then perhaps start on what will, I, I believe, uh, uh, take us uh, through the next couple of Thursdays, the practical relevance of this whole matter to us. What is the challenge that is inherent, not within the mystery, but the challenge that is inherent within the revelation? God does not cast pearl before swine. If he knows that you're just going to um, uh, trample over this kind of thing, God will not reveal it to you. But where he finds a meek heart, and a heart that's ready to obey, and a heart that's ready to go on with him, then he will start to really reveal it. Now, divine light, once granted, cannot be compromised or contradicted in practice without the most 
grave consequences. Now, I wonder whether that sunk into you all. Divine light, once granted, cannot be compromised or contradicted in practice without the most grave consequences. Now, I, I, I do wish this could get into your heart. I know that there are times when I tend to speak rather forcefully and sometimes perhaps inadvisedly. But the burden on my heart has been this simple thing, that when God gives us light, the enemy will do every single thing in his power to pressurize us, both leadership and people, into contradicting it. And no one is so foolish as to think that light will ever be contradicted blatantly. No one who knows the Lord ever contradicts the light of God blatantly. It always comes through the back door. It always comes through the pressure of circumstances. Things become difficult. Things become pressurized. We begin to want, the problems mount up. We wonder, what can we do? What can we do here, there, everywhere? And before we know where we are, we take action, or we change things, or sometimes it may only seem to be detail. But suddenly, something that God has given to us has been compromised. Now, the whole problem of divine light is this. That once we compromise, it's the thin end of the wedge. And every, let us be quite honest about this. We only have to look at the whole of church history. There is not a single movement of the Holy Spirit in the long history of the church, of the people of God, which has not gone off the rails at some point. And it has all begun with some small excess, some small extreme, something that somehow or other has been, some action that's been taken which has become the thin end of the wedge. That's why light is a tremendously important matter and why the charismatic movement has, with its emphasis upon life, quite rightly, come into grave danger by not at the same time emphasizing the essential nature of light. Life and light go together. And it is an interesting thing, as I've said before, that light precedes life in John's great epistle when he speaks of God as light, he then speaks of God as love, and then speaks of God as life. Light preceded life. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And then God said, let the earth be caused to bring forth. And it came forth. And let the waters teem with teeming things. And let the heavens, let there be flying things, and so on and so forth. Light came first, life followed. Now, it would be, a, as I've said before, a fine theological point to decide which is really comes first, 
first life or light. <laughs> but it is interesting that in at least this whole matter of unfolding it to us, God puts light first and life comes secondly. And isn't that how you and I were born of God? Didn't a shaft of divine light shine into our hearts? And in that moment we responded to God and became alive unto God through the work of the Holy Spirit. These two things then go hand in hand. And you see, the whole challenge that is inherent within the revelation of the mystery of Christ is that once the light of God shines into our hearts and we begin to see what the mystery really is, the privilege of it, the glory of it, the wonder of it, the dynamic of it, then we have to be very careful that we do not compromise on what God has shown us. And we don't contradict it in practice. God does not reveal the mystery of Christ simply for sermon material or theological treaties or doctrinal outlines. <laughs> Nor does he even reveal it as a kind of ideal, a theory, which is good to keep in one's mind, but which is impossible of realization down here on this earth. God reveals the mystery of Christ for the obedience of faith. That's what we read in that Roman letter and chapter 16. And those wonderful words that Paul closes this tremendous letter, which the Holy Spirit uh, so gloriously inspired. He ends like this, According to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept in silence through times eternal, but now is manifested unto obedience of faith. So the answer that God looks for in our hearts is not a mental assent, it is the obedience of faith. This challenge is not only inescapable, but it demands a response. And that response is the obedience of faith. I don't think anybody would ever be able to truly respond to the revelation of the mystery of Christ apart from obedience, the obedience of faith. There has to be faith. When God said to Abraham, get thee out, in one sense, we, he didn't see the mystery of Christ, but there was something which he did see. He saw the city which has the foundations, which has something to do with it. And... If God had not created divine faith in his heart, there could have been no obedience. But by faith, he obeyed to go out, not knowing whither he went. And so it has to be with you and with me. The heart of this whole matter is that having been saved by the grace of God and made one with the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to grow to full stature. 
Did you get that? That's the heart of this whole matter. You see, <clears throat> the mystery of Christ is simply this. We've been made fellow members of the body. We have been brought into a position where we are partakers of the divine nature, the apostle Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4. It is a tremendous and glorious privilege that has been given to us by the grace of God. You and I have been made one with the Lord Jesus, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. We've been made fellow members of the body. We have been brought into him, as it were. We've been made his body. Think of that. There is no meaning to a body without the head. And in one sense, even when we look at the Lord Jesus' head, there's no meaning to a head without a body. The point of the body is that it has a head. And the point of the head is that it's joined to a body. And so there is this marvelous union into which you and I have been brought. It is to be, on the one side, like the being the bride of Christ. We are to come into such an intimate union with him, such a direct union with him, such a communion with him, that it's just like a marriage in which we... We are given his name. We are joined to him. We become one with him. The two become one. And the apostle Paul alludes to this. In this he says, this mystery is great, but I speak of Christ and the church. He says in the verse preceding, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He said, this mystery is great, but I speak of Christ and the church. Now, that's one side of this glorious mystery. But the other side is that we are to become the city of God. This bride that we read of um, in Revelation 21 and 22 is the new Jerusalem, the holy city. It is the city of God. And a city is something quite different to a bride. It has an altogether different symbolism. A city is the center of administration. It is the heart of, the, of, a, of national intercourse. It is the commercial center of a nation, as well as the administrative center of a nation. And so we come into something just as wonderful, that not only does the Lord, has the Lord... Not only has the Lord saved us to bring us into a union with himself so intimate that it can only be described as a marriage, but he wants to bring us into such a position in himself that we become his eternal government, that with his son we reign from the throne, not as a kind of, uh, the kind of picture you often get of people all sitting on thrones, draped in finery, and sort of exhibiting themselves before everybody. That's not the idea you get in Scripture. That's the world's idea of kingship. The biblical idea of kingship is service. And so we have this amazing picture of eternal service, of divine service, a city at the heart of a, of a recreated universe, a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness, and at the heart of it, a, an administration, a government, a throne, and those who've been trained for that government qualified for that government. Now, I, 
I don't know whether you've ever noticed these little words, but you see, if that is true, then what is the challenge? Now listen carefully to me. Listen very carefully. It may make all the difference between you really getting a kind of bomb that starts you moving on with God for the rest of your spiritual life, or you just sitting in a kind of static way for the rest. This mystery is not revealed to tickle our brains. It's not revealed that we might sort of have a blowout in the mind. Pooh! That was terrific. But many people think, mystery of Christ? What's he spending whole evenings talking about the mystery of Christ for? That's all theoretical. That's all mystical. That's all up there. And some people who've got a bent that way love it like that. Oh, they say, it's all up there. Wonderful. It's a form of escapism, you know. We, we, a nation that's ridden with strikes and selfishness and what else, but we're thinking of, oh, it's, it's all sort of um, up there. It's a kind of Christian transcendental meditation. Sort of calms our nerves and helps us to escape from the routine. But this isn't what the river, uh, this mystery is revealed to you for. This mystery is revealed to you because it is concrete reality. More real than your little humdrum routine life here. It is absolute reality into which you have been brought by the grace of God. And if that is true, you need to be trained. You cannot put people into governmental positions or administrative positions who've not been educated. You've got to be educated. You've got to be trained. You've got to be qualified. You've got to grow. You've got to come to what this book calls maturity, or the old word in the authorised version, perfection. Now just take your Bible, your New Testament, just look at a few of these scriptures, and see if, in fact, in the Word of God, you do not find some of these things. For instance, in Ephesians 4 and verse uh, 13, till we all attain unto the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a full-grown man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, there's nothing static about that. It says, till we all attain unto the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a full-grown man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, those are tremendous terms, but what it does say is this. Apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists have all been given for this job of bringing the believers to this place till they arrive at the unity of the faith and the full knowledge of the Son of God till they come to a full-grown man, till they come to this measure of the stature 
of the fullness of Christ. Look again um, uh, in Colossians and chapter um, 1 and verse 27 and 28. To whom God was pleased to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ. That we may present every man perfect in Christ. So this mystery isn't just something static. It is something into which we are brought and which we have to be, we have to come to maturity in him. Now, if that's so, then I suggest that there's an awful lot that you and I need to take note of. It's the same thought again in Philippians chapter um, 3 and uh, verse 12 to 14. Now, this is one of the most remarkable passages of the New Testament because here the Apostle Paul opens his heart and gives his testimony. There are very few places, except in the book of Acts, where you have the testimony of the Apostle Paul. And nowhere is it more fully given than here, the spiritual character of this man. Now listen to him. Not that I have already obtained, or am already made perfect, but I press on, if so be that I may lay hold on that for which also I was laid hold on by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself yet to have laid hold, but one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind and stretching forward to the things which are before, I press on toward the goal unto the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now what is he talking about? Earlier on in this testimony he says, I count this and this and this and this, but refuse that I may win Christ. But then we might ask ourselves, but you don't win Christ. Christ is the unspeakable gift of God. Given to us by the grace of God. We don't win. We don't have to do things to win Christ, do we? We're saved by the grace of God. When we ask for forgiveness, when we bow before him in confession and repentance. So what is he talking about? That I may win Christ. And then he speaks about that I may attain unto the resurrection from among the dead. And it, literally, it is the out-resurrection from among the dead. What on earth is he talking about? We're all going to be raised from the dead. So what's he talking about? That I may attain unto the resurrection from among the dead. He doesn't say that I may attain unto the resurrection of the dead. He says that I may attain unto the resurrection from among the dead. Then he says, Christ Jesus laid hold on me for something. This wasn't my salvation. Having saved me, he put his hand upon me because he wanted to do something with me. Now I lay hold on that for which he laid hold on me. I press on. What to? To the goal. Ah, the goal. Now we've got it. So we're saved by the grace of God. But having been saved, there's a goal. And the goal, reaching the goal, is all of the grace of God. But you and I must appropriate every bit of the provision of God if we're going to come to the goal. 
I press on toward the goal and to the prize of the on-high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now, I know that may be a lot for some of you, especially those of you who are young in the Lord. But you know, if you only have your eyes open just a little to a, to a, a wider horizon, a further horizon, it will change your life. This idea that you and I have just been saved to sort of sing hymns, say prayers, uh, read the scriptures, and if we're very good witness, and then after that, there's no more. We die and we go to heaven and we join our, an eternal hallelujah chorus. Forever and ever and ever and ever. Just sitting on clouds, playing harps and, and singing. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't believe that God created us intelligent human beings. I mean, we love singing. We love to praise the Lord. But God hasn't created us just simply and only to sing eternally. God made us in, in his image with a creative genius. And we don't even know what the mind of God is for the future. But this we do know, that it has something to do with being in his son, and something to do with his son being in us. It is something to do with being one with him. So I understand this testimony of the, of the Apostle Paul in this way, that when he says that I may win Christ, he didn't mean win Christ as Savior, he meant that I may win Christ as bridegroom. That having been saved by the grace of God, the Apostle Paul may not, having preached to others, himself be a reject. Not a reject from salvation, but a reject from the goal. Now, if really we begin to understand this, it changes our whole mind. Is the Lord Jesus bringing many sons to glory? Are we to be conformed to the same image from glory to glory? It cannot be without deep and costly experience. I do not know a single human being who has become Christ-like in a kind of fairy tale wand-waving op operation. You and I, having been saved by the grace of God, and however many experiences we have of the Holy Spirit, nevertheless have got to have deep and sometimes bitter experiences by which we are conformed to the image of his Son. But when we go on, it's from glory to glory. Something happens in us. And it's not only personal, it's corporate. Such experience is not possible without revelation. And practical obedience to the light God gives us. In other words, unless God reveals this matter to us, we're in the dark. But once God reveals this matter to us, then there has to be obedience. And when there is obedience, then we move on with him. Now, you may not understand all that I've said thus far. You may understand very little of it. But one thing you can get hold of is this, that if you trust and obey, you'll get there. It's as simple as that. There are those that can have great understanding of biblical truths, but get nowhere. And there can be those who have very little understanding of this, but because they learn this one lesson to trust and obey. Like the old Aesop's uh, fable 
about the hare and the tortoise. The tortoise gets their thirst. So this matter is important. To be part of the wife of the Lamb, to be part of the city of God, requires not only that we be born of God, but that we grow to maturity. And this requires experience. It requires training. It requires education. We cannot come to the throne without such qualification. Babes cannot reign practically. The kingdom of God is filled with little spiritual babes. All they're interested in is spiritual toys, spiritual dummies, something that they can just hold and look at and be happy with. Whereas we've got to grow. There is a time for babyhood. There is a time for the kindergarten. There is a time for primary school. But after that, we have to grow up. And that's what I find so very interesting when you start to look at scriptures like these. In Revelation chapter 3, speaking to a born-again church which had grown very lukewarm, the Lord said, I counsel thee to buy of me gold refined in the fire. Now, why did the Lord say, I counsel thee to buy of me gold refined in the fire? Since gold speaks of the divine nature of God, surely it's given to us by the grace of God through the saving work of the Lord Jesus. Yes, but you see, the price is experience. And if you look at the end of, the, of that book, you will find that the city of God is made out of pure gold. So how do you get this gold? You get it through the finished work of the Lord Jesus on the cross, but it is at the price of experience. No other way. Listen again to what he says. Verse 21 of the same chapter. He that overcometh, I will give to him to sit down with me in my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father in his throne. There is an overcoming then, and we have to overcome in the same way that he overcame. If we overcome, we sit down with him in his throne, as he overcame and sat down in his father's throne. Now, when you begin to look at some of these things, you find it everywhere. Revelation chapter 3, verse um, 12, He that overcometh, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out thence no more, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God and mine own new name. Now, I find that interesting. And I can't help feeling that many Protestants have very sadly overlooked a whole area of teaching which has been the province of the Catholics. And this is one of them. That we have put such an accent on grace that we have produced a whole uh, mentality, a lazy mentality. We're saved by grace, don't have to do anything. We're saved fully-fledged. There is no need to go on. We just stay where we are, we've got it all. But does the book say that? Overcoming surely means some kind of discovery of the grace of God in deeper and deeper and deeper ways. Surely it means that we have to discover the power of the Holy Spirit in deeper and deeper and fuller ways. What does it mean that we must buy gold? 
unless we come into experiences where we find our own bankruptcy and have to look to God and at the cost of deep experience we find that with something more of the nature of the Lamb has come into us. Look again at another passage in the Word of God in 1 Corinthians and chapter 3. And verse 12, verse 11. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. But if any man build on the foundation gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, stubble, each man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it is revealed in fire. And the fire itself shall prove each man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work shall abide which he built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Now, will you please note that the Lord is not here talking about salvation. And he's not even talking about your own personal character. He's talking about what you're putting into the house of God. What you're putting into the body of Christ. What, your, what kind of material you are producing and using in the building. And it's all to do with an end. If a man's work, built on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ, abides, he shall receive a reward. Otherwise, he, he will be saved, but so is by fire. He comes through with nothing but his salvation. He has lost the goal that the Apostle Paul made so much of. Now, if all this is really so, I begin again to understand Revelation 21 and verse 7. He that overcometh shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And the father there doesn't say he shall be my child. He says he shall be my son. In other words, those who were babes have grown to the place where they're sons in the administration of God. They've overcome, they've inherited. You've got the same thing, of course, again in Revelation 21, verse 18, where it says, And the building of the wall thereof was jasper, and the city was pure gold like unto pure glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all manner of precious stones. Verse 21, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, um, uh, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were, transparent as glass. Now, this matter of the mystery of Christ is intensely practical. Our whole life, our home life, our work life, business life, above all, our relationship with one another in the Lord Jesus becomes the sphere of our education. The office you're in is no accident. The college you're in is no accident. It is the sphere in which God is educating. Your home life is not some little appendage, something that's sort of uh, not in the center of everything but somehow outside. You come out of it to the church, that's the heart of everything, and you go back to your home, which is sort of a kind of, uh, well, uh, it's not in the flow of everything. It's not so. 
as I think we shall see, not this evening, but certainly one of these evenings, every one of these matters is put right into the heart of this, mass, of, of this matter. The Apostle Paul goes to tremendous lengths to talk about husbands and wives, and it's all to do with this mystery. It sounds strange to us. He speaks of wives subjecting themselves to their husbands as, as the church to Christ. Husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church. They have to care for their wives as their own body, just as Christ cares for the church. And he even goes on to fathers and their children and children and their parents. And then goes on to the workaday relationships, which would be much more difficult for us in those days than they are today with all our problems. Because in those days, it was a slave owner. And he speaks of masters and slaves. And the kind of relationship that somehow or other that they have. It's not as if he's saying, all oh, this is right. What he's saying is, this is the sphere in which God works the most precious works in his children and brings them to a place where they're trained, where they're disciplined, where they're qualified, where through deep experience they come to the place where they can reign with Christ. Now it's down here that all this has got to happen and if it doesn't happen down here there's no hope for us. Now I hardly dare move on to anything else this evening um, because I think really that's probably enough um, for uh, one night and maybe you're feeling a little weary and, and tired but you know the practical relevance of all this is really tremendous first of all next week we'll talk about the local expression you see, it's, it's an amazing thing that this mystery of Christ, far from being some mystical thing, abstract, vague, ethereal, somewhere up there, it's a matter of knowing Christ and knowing one another in Christ in the area in which we live. Many people become spiritual butterflies. They flip from company to company, sucking the spiritual nectar here and there, or sometimes being bored stiff. But they escape all responsibility and all discipline. It is a very nice thing to be able to go from place to place and to be able just to judge what's going on. They say, I didn't think much of that. Or don't you think that was tremendous? And when there's a bit of blessing, oh, we say, it was wonderful. We were there when that tremendous moving of the Spirit of God came amongst those people. We were there. But it doesn't mean anything to heaven. Because it was never worked out in relationship with one another. This matter of the local expression of this is just tremendous. It's got to be expressed locally. The easiest thing in the world to say that you love the saints in Hong Kong. Anyone can love the saints in Hong Kong. Thousands of miles away. You can love the saints in Newcastle because they happen to be a few hundreds of miles away. It, God says it doesn't mean anything to me whether you can love the saints where you're living. And if you can't, I'll tell you a secret. 
You'll never love them in Newcastle either once you live with them. That's where we're all found out on this thing. We, some people, find it easier to put a, a little bit of money towards some missionary effort, the other side of the world, but they wouldn't dream of calling on a neighbor and helping them. Wouldn't dream of witnessing for the Lord. It was much easier to pay for something else miles away. But it's this local expression that's so tremendously important. And this matter of where we live, I think it's very important. It's one of the things God showed us right at the beginning, the local nature of the expression of the church. And when we start to travel in from great distances, we can all do it in times when there's no emergency and, and no civil strife or no war. Of course we can. We can drive in. People sometimes say, well, does it matter? We've got a car. We can get in very easily. It doesn't seem to matter. Compromise comes in. We'll, 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 we'll be all right. We'll, we can get in swiftly. Then comes trouble. No petrol. And when you've got children, you have an added problem. How do you get in? Now, if I read my Bible aright, I understand that we're moving more and more into those days when we're going to have civil emergencies, where there's going to be strife and when there's going to be war. And therefore, this whole matter of living in close proximity is essential. If we feel that God has called us to this part of the family, then we've got to be very practical about it. Now, I know people will say, well, that's very easy for him to say that. Does he know what it costs? It's much easier to get a place right out on the fringe of things. But this is where we're forced by circumstances to compromise. And in the end, we're always found out by compromise. You see, the scripture says there will not only be, it says, earthquakes. Well, thank God we don't live in an earthquake region. That's very selfish. But I mean, we sort of say, well, Britain's not in an earthquake uh, uh, region. <laughs> where I live for part of the year, is right on one of the major faults. Um, and, of course, any time it will happen, but, but, but for the grace of God. But here there's no earthquake. Okay. It says there will be earthquakes in diverse places. It says there will be wars. It says there will be famines. And we sometimes think of famines as only famines of food but maybe it will be a famine of energy. Now, if that kind of thing comes, suddenly we realize the value of being near to one another. Do you begin to realize what, I'm, what we're saying? See, these, these truths that God has revealed to us uh, about the mystery of Christ in its, pra it, the, in its practical outworking are not things we can compromise on. We do so at our own peril. We can get away with it because it's a shortcut. But in the long term, we shall suffer. It is a tremendous thing in time of war, if you're a, an older sister, on your own, to be near to others who can just walk round to you and see that you're all right. What are we going to do if people are right out miles away? We can't walk there. The telephones may be destroyed. You may not be able to communicate. People don't think of these things. Here's a mother with two children or three children or whatever, right out somewhere. 
How is anyone going to get there? Or you say, well, we'll phone through to some local company and get them to go round. You won't be able to do it. So there are many of these practical things. This mystery of Christ may all sound very wonderful. We are, oh, it's glorious. We're one with the Lord Jesus. We're, 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 we're united to him. We have been made partakers of the divine nature. And we're, we're, one, we're one body in Christ, isn't it? Marvelous. But then it comes down to the actual practical side of it. Our unity. That's the heart of the whole thing. Our real unity. No sex barriers. No national barriers, no racial barriers, no color barriers, no social barriers, no age barriers. It's one Christ. Now that'll way we shall have some problems. You look at a thing like that, we must begin to say, well now. Don't we have some problems with living in the 20th century? Exactly. But you see, we've got to discover how does this thing work out? What are the ways in which it works out? Take this question of government. The mystery of Christ is a matter of government. It's a matter of being under the headship of Jesus. It speaks of it growing up into him as head from whom the whole body, or holding fast the head. But you know, we are living in a day where authority is no longer respected or obeyed in days of growing anarchy. And this spirit comes right into the house of God as well. Now, you know as well as I do, I don't believe in this heavy-handed, authority thing that, you know, this pyramid structure that some believe in, uh, where everyone is submitted to somebody, <clears throat> and where really in the end you end up with a kind of police state. But you can go the other way too. In the house of God there is order. How can anyone occupy a position of authority in the ages to come in a new heaven and a new earth if they haven't learnt to be under authority down here? Do you think that God will put under you a whole number of people and say, now you are responsible for those thousands of people or hundreds of people or perhaps millions of people and you have never been under one other person? We learn our greatest lessons when we have somehow or other to recognize the headship of Jesus as it's found in our brothers and sisters. It is the hardest lesson of all. Because we're all so frail and so weak, we don't have to look very far to find all the flaws and all the weaknesses and all the failings which excuse us from having to um, uh, obey in any way or submit in any way. Now you understand what I'm trying to say. All these are the practical, this is the practical relevance of this mystery of Christ. If we are members of a body, then each part has got to function. I can't see that if you've never functioned down here, never ever been a joint of supply, you've never given anything, you've never passed on anything, you've never shared anything, uh, uh, how can you be in this 
body of the Lord, this bride of, the, of, of, of Christ, this wife of the Lamb, this city of God. What are we going to do in eternity? Well, you begin to see, do you, that there are some quite practical questions raised by all this. And I sometimes think, and I know the brothers here have it as a, a burden and a responsibility. I sometimes think that we folks, we think that by just attending a meeting, just listening to a Bible study, putting in an appearance at a prayer meeting, we're actually in, involved in this matter. Thank God that everyone who's born again is potentially in the bride of Christ. But we've got to go places. And we've got to go places not only personally but corporately. It's in our relationship to one another that this whole thing is really finally brought to its acid test. So here we have something that we haven't very many years left to us to allow God to do the kind of work that needs to be done in our lives. I don't know if you feel like I do. I think back on many, many wasted opportunities. Time that's been frittered away and wasted. God alone can wake us up on this. And by his grace bring us face to face with the real issues. May the Lord help you. And may he help me also in this matter. Shall we pray? Lord, we do pray that thou wilt really bring the challenge of this whole matter home to us. Lord, we pray that in some way thou wilt create in our hearts that obedience of faith. Lord, thou knowest how it's very easy for us, somehow or other, to fritter away our lives, even when we're saved, playing about with divine things, just on the circumference, always dithering, never really coming into what thou hast for us. Lord, deliver us, we pray. Oh, by thy Holy Spirit, so move in our hearts, so fall upon us, that we shall, Lord, be enabled to wake up and to face the challenge and to face it with the obedience of faith. Lord, help us in this matter, we pray. We commit this evening to thee, O Lord. We pray that it may not be wasted, misspent in any way. Forgive weakness in speaking, Lord, and grant that thy word might get right into our hearts in such a way that there will be a consequence and a result that will, Lord, be eternal. And we ask all this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.